0: listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. If you're visiting with us, welcome. We're glad you're here. You should have gotten a connection card when you came in the door. If this is the first time here, uh, then make sure you fill that thing out. And on your way out the door, we'd like to take that card and trade. We'd like to give you something as you're going out the door on that side. And uh, we just want to give you some information about us and, and to be able to, to let you uh, get some uh, regular emails and things about what we're doing. But basically, if you're here for the first time, I can, I can pretty well assure you that what you see this morning is who we are. And uh, if that resonates with you, well, we do this every week and would love to see you back. We're about to start a whole new series today in 2 Peter. So we're going to... Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It, you, would, you would think that we'd been in another book for a very long time, but uh, we're going to start looking at the letter of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, written by the Apostle Peter to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day turkey. I'm going to go ahead and let you know, because if, if you start doing some of your own research about this New Testament letter called 2 Peter, you might discover, in fact I say you probably will discover, that there are many modern biblical scholars, especially right now and in our recent past, who actually don't believe that 2 Peter should be included in the canon of the New Testament Scripture. And, and actually, they have some interesting arguments about why they don't believe that 2 Peter is authentic. They believe that it was written much later than the life of Peter by someone who just wanted to kind of hang on to his street cred and get their epistle uh, you know, circulating around. They've, they've got some interesting arguments I hesitate to say that they're valid arguments because I wouldn't want you to think that I am leaning in that direction. But I think that many in that scholarly realm are being honest about their uh, questioning the authenticity of 2 Peter. Some of it has to do with the style of the Greek text in comparison to the first letter That Peter is identified with, that he wrote pretty distinct styles in the Greek writing. But, if you back up and realize that in first peter that that the that the author peter uh, he he says that I have someone pinning this, his name was Sylvanus, or maybe you might remember him as Silas, the companion of Paul, who was writing as Peter was apparently dictating, it would be fair to think that Silas may have been writing in his own way, the things that Peter was saying. Very much like if you were from up north and you were asking me to write a letter and and I'm not necessarily going word for word, I might throw a y'all in there where you may not say that. Why? Because I'm southern and we say things like y'all. Well, it's possible and and really not too far-fetched to believe that Peter's first letter, penned by Silvanus, had Silas's fingerprints on it. But we know through the doctrine of Scripture that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we know that if God intended it, while Peter may have been saying it in his first letter and Silas may have been writing it, we know that the Holy Spirit of God was superintending what He intended for us to hear. So that Second Peter has a different Greek style could just simply be that Peter was actually writing this one on his own accord. There are other arguments about interpretational issues that some think this says it was further down the road. But from my study, I find that the one thing that cannot be argued is that in the 4th century at the Council of Hippo, where the church was deciding, is it in, is it out, Second Peter made it in. And so there was a, a strong consensus among the church that 2 Peter was authentic to the apostle Peter. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take it, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to try my best to explain it, and I believe God the Holy Spirit was the author of it, and that He is going to help us apply it But if you're interested in that kind of stuff, I would recommend that you go study it out and I'll be happy to go let you buy me a cup of coffee and we'll argue about whether it should be in or out. But at any rate, I just want you to be aware of that. But beyond those arguments, we're just going to say this is the second letter of Peter written to the churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. This letter was written, most believe, from Rome around the years A.D. 65 to 66. Now, if Jesus was crucified and raised around A.D. 30, then, then this is 35 years past the resurrection. Lots happened in Peter's life. He's an old man now. So 65 to 66 A.D. from Rome, many believe that it's very possible that Peter was under incarceration at this time because history tells us that Peter was executed around 67 AD so this is about a year maybe a year and a half before he becomes a martyr for faith in Jesus the book of second peter is written to encourage the continued spiritual growth in the believers there in those churches in Asia Minor, which, by the way, I'll tell you, were people who were suffering great amounts of persecution. You say, how do you know that, Pastor Kevin? Well, because the first letter of Peter sent to the churches in Asia Minor talks about how to navigate persecution as a follower of Jesus, how to embrace suffering with hope. And so these are, are, are individuals that he's writing to towards the end of his life to encourage, to spur on continued spiritual growth. He also writes to warn them about false teachers and the ramifications of their false teaching. Peter knows that there are people coming in with the intent of perverting the gospel, with the intent of twisting the words of Jesus. And unfortunately for many, it's working. People are, 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 are making uh, grave errors in their theology. And Peter's warning them about these false teachers. He's warning them how to identify them and their false teaching. And then lastly, he writes to remind his readers of the certainty of Jesus' return. Now, when Jesus ascended back up into the heavens, everyone who saw him go assumed that Jesus was going to go run an errand back to his father, do a quick U-turn, come right back and get everyone. And that's not what has happened. Thirty-five years have passed, and Peter and others that were expecting an almost immediate return of Jesus are now realizing their lives are coming to an end and Jesus hasn't yet returned so what does that mean and Peter does due diligence in reminding us that just because he hasn't come back yet doesn't mean he's not coming you can count on it his return is certain so over the next few weeks we're going to piggyback those original readers those original hearers and be encouraged in our spiritual growth be warned of false teachers and be reminded that jesus is coming again so that's why he wrote in order to encourage maybe like paul who wrote second timothy knowing his time was up Was just dumping the truck just so that I can just get everything that I feel like you need out before I'm gone. Seems that's what Peter is doing as well. My time is near at hand. I can sense it. I can see it. Maybe he even knows it as he alludes to in chapter 1. We're going to listen to what God says through a pretty interesting individual. You see, Simon Peter identifies himself in chapter 1, verse number 1. It says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, a bond slave. I'm a submitted slave. I'm a slave on purpose. I wasn't wrestled by the Lord against my will. No, I'm a bond slave to my Savior because I want to be. And and I'm an apostle because he called me as one. He's given me that privilege. In this introductory type statement, he says, this is Peter who's writing, a bond slave and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. What does he mean by this? Well, most believe that the churches in Asia Minor had a heavy number of Gentile believers. And so Peter, the very Jewish guy that he was, the Galilean, is, is always considering himself as a, a, a descendant of Abraham. And he's writing to those who have believed and those that are not a part of the family of Abraham who have also believed and have experienced salvation just like we have. The Messiah who came to his people is now the Messiah and Savior of all who will call on his name by faith. That's who I'm writing to. Those who have obtained faith of equal standing whether Jew or Greek The same standing with ours, by the righteousness of, and catch this, look what he says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christians shouldn't believe, many say, that Jesus is God because even Jesus never claimed to be God and the early believers never saw him as such. And right here he says, that faith that is yours is just like ours that has come to us. And I don't know how it works, but has come to us by the righteousness of the one we should worship because he is God and Savior. And interestingly enough, Peter had the opportunity to hear the voice from heaven, seeing the person of the Son, and he has, in the early parts of this uh, earthly ministry post-Jesus, has experienced the work of the Holy Spirit, yet he even knows that Jesus, the Father, the Spirit, three persons, one God, if you know Him, it's because of His righteousness for you. So Peter identifies himself as this bond slave. But before we get into the book of 2 Peter, before we begin wrestling with the concepts, and I'll just go ahead and tell you up front, there are going to be some things in here that are hard to interpret. There's some, there are going to be things we're going to run across that I'm going to try my best to explain to you to the best of my ability how these hard statements, these hard phrases, how they might fit, and, and, and I'll try to come at it from every legitimate angle there is. Even if there's one that I go, eh, I'm not sure that it's that. I'm, I'm going to try to share it with you so that we're hearing what, what all of God's children are, are wrestling with. and things. It's going to be hard. Before we get into that, I think we just need to, to sit back for just a second, for a few minutes, and consider the journey of this one who calls himself a bond slave. See, in my study, I started looking for instances of Peter in the New Testament. And and I was able to chart all the way through. I'm sure I missed some of them. but, but, But I tried to get as many instances of Peter in the New Testament as I could find. In order to just get a glimpse of this guy who calls himself the bondservant of Jesus Christ. You know what I came to realize is that's not where he's always been. In fact, Peter had a pretty interesting transformational journey. From who he was when Jesus first met him. To who he is as he's writing to encourage these believers. To where he's headed in just over 12 months from that time. And I thought, what if we were to just survey the life of this one we call Peter? We first meet Peter as an impulsive risk taker. You know anybody who's impulsive? You you, you, you ever had a redneck friend who almost always when you were out with him or her was going to say something like this, Hey, y'all, watch this. That's an impulsive individual who, who sees a risk and loves to take it. That's what Peter was. He, he spoke first and thought later. He, he acted first and evaluated the consequences. This impulsive risk-taker is introduced to us in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. If you have the Oasis Church app, You should have the notes in there under the Sunday tab at the bottom. Click on the notes you can follow along. These are scriptures that I would love for you to be able to go back and read and enjoy as you see the picture of Peter throughout the New Testament. If you don't have the Oasis Church app, make sure you go over there and click that QR code with your phone so you can get access to it on the way out before you leave. It's on the wall over there. We see this impulsive risk taker in Mark chapter 1 verses 16 and 18 when Jesus comes along and sees four guys and says... I know you're fishermen, but I want you to follow me. Leave what you got and follow me. And this impulsive risk taker says, all right. And they leave their boats, they leave their nets, they leave their families. Now, we know, as we talked about last week, we know that what Jesus had just done in front of them, providing a, a miracle of this bountiful catch at the, at the wrong time of day with the wrong, you know, equipment and place in the water. And Jesus performed this miracle. So they had a little bit of evidence. But we don't see him saying, you know what, let me calculate. No, he goes, no, I'm, I'm in it. I'm gone. This impulsive risk taker. Josephus, the Jewish historian and one-time general in the region of Galilee, described Galileans this way, as ever fond of innovation, so they love new ways of doing stuff, they were by nature disposed to changes and delighting in seditions." Basically, what he's saying is is that Galileans love to find something that people thought couldn't be done, because they love to just jump in and try. They liked change. They're different from most of us. Most of us don't like change. The Galileans apparently delighted in opportunities to throw their hat in the ring. And this is the man we meet, this impulsive guy. William Barclay, the 20th century Scottish theologian, said this, Quick-tempered, impulsive, emotional, easily roused by an appeal to adventure and loyal to the end. This Peter was a typical man of Galilee. This is the man we meet, this impulsive, risk-taking individual who moves first and thinks second. We, we, we kind of see a little bit of this in Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. When in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples are, are toiling in the wind and the waves, and, and out ahead of them, they see a figure walking on the water. And they think it's a ghost to begin with, and then ultimately discover wait a minute, that's Jesus defying the laws of gravity and and water buoyancy. You're, You're walking on the water. You should be sinking, swimming, but you're not. You're walking. And they're delighted and frightened and amazed. And Peter goes, can I do that? Some of y'all are like that in the room right now. You, you, rather than, than thinking about what is this I'm seeing, you're going, I, hey, I'd like to, can I, can I try a little bit of that? And, and you know what? You're like Peter. That impulsive, risk-taking. Well, if you'll call me out, I can certainly do it. And you know what? That's exactly what he did. Jesus said, come on. Out Peter went, walking on water, till he got his eyes off Jesus and began to sink. But even as he began to sink... As he cried out to his Lord in desperation, you know, consequences later, action now. Even then, Jesus was there to grab him by the hand and bring him to safety. This impulsive guy, this risk-taking guy, who in Matthew 17, 1 through 8, had the opportunity with, uh, with James and John to walk with Jesus up the side of a hill, where when they get to the top, Jesus begins to demonstrate a little glimpse of His glory. We call this the transfiguration. When He began to show them a little bit of His divinity. A little bit of His eternal glory. And Peter being the impulsive guy that he was as he looked around and noticed wait a minute we're not alone there's two Old Testament figures it's Moses, it's Elijah, it's Jesus I got an idea what if we were to set up an opportunity to celebrate that everybody's here and we get to be a part of it and that's when God out of heaven says this is my beloved son listen to him basically what God was saying shut up Peter You're talking when you should be listening and observing and and paying close attention. And and that voice sent them to their face, but the voice of the Savior was right there to go, come on boys, get up. It's going to be all right. This impulsive, raw, rough around the edges dude that really nobody else would have picked and we know why, was the one Jesus said, I want you to follow me. Anybody feel that way? That nah, I just don't feel, I, 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 I trust Jesus, I believe, but man, I'm, he's still working on me. He's got a lot of work to do. That's what Peter was at the beginning. As he began to follow Jesus, we see him move from this impulsive risk taker to the take charge PR man. Mark identifies him in his list of disciples as the first. When he's listing, he's, and, and in fact, all of the, the, the Gospels who identify the list of apostles list him. But Mark calls him the first, giving us that impression that, well, let's start with Simon. Let's begin with him. He's the first among us. This take-charge guy. We see in three passages of Scripture, Matthew 15, 15, Matthew 18, 21, Matthew 19, 27, we see where Jesus has done or said something, and it's Peter who comes to the Lord as the spokesman for the twelve. Matthew 15, 15, Jesus had told a parable that he didn't quite understand, and he goes, basically, so Jesus, we're all wondering, what do you mean by that? And I'm imagining the other disciples saying, go ask him, Peter. Why? Because, well, you're the one who always seems to take charge. You're the one who's risen to the top. You're the one who's always walking up front. Go ask him. I'll go ask him. So Jesus, what do you mean by that parable? Matthew 18, 21. He comes to them after the Pharisees had questioned about forgiveness. And he goes, "Well, well, Jesus, let me ask you a question, Peter says. Should, should we forgive somebody seven times? And, and you just can imagine he's turning around smiling at his buddies because they all know that the synagogue teaching was you would forgive someone three times. And then if they offend you that fourth time, well, you don't have to forgive them anymore. Just hold your grudge, take it to the grave. Jesus is talking about a different type of forgiveness. And so Peter goes, oh, what? Seven times? That's more than twice. Twice. What they teach, and surely I'm going to get a gold star. It's at that point that Jesus says, "No, actually, Peter, it's multiples of seven times without end." But as the spokesperson, he's the one who came with the idea. Matthew 19:27, as Jesus. Was Referring to the costs of discipleship and, and leaving behind family and, 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 and jobs and houses and lands in order to focus your attention on following Christ. And Peter's the one willing to come up and go, uh, Lord, uh, so we're all wondering what we can expect having left everything to follow you. And Jesus replies that they can expect God's blessing and, and, and they can certainly expect Certain aspects of blessing in this life, but certainly that in the life to come for leaving what is behind and following Him. Oh, okay. And Peter goes back to share because he's the take charge guy. But not only that, in Matthew 27, uh, 24, we see Peter receiving inquiries from those outside. The group comes into Capernaum, the city, interestingly enough, where Peter lives. and the synagogue leaders come to Peter and say, "Hey, I noticed that your master didn't pay the temple tax when he came in. So we're going to take care of that. You going to handle that for us, Peter?" Peter attempts to talk with Jesus about that and Jesus gives him an education on what it means for the the child of the of the king who establishes the tax to not have to pay for the tax everybody gets that well guess what Peter I'm the son of the king I'm not responsible for the tax but since you have told them we'll pay it, go down, put a hook in a lake, catch a fish, put in the bucket whatsoever in the fish's mouth. And he found a shekel, a shilling, which was enough for Peter, and Jesus' tax was paid. Point being, Peter, I'm more than what you think I am. But Peter was the PR guy. He was the one who was running traffic. He was the one up front. He was the take charge guy. So this impulsive risk taker is now walking in the place of prominence with the Lord. He's his right hand man, so to speak. But what that typically leads to in most people's lives when we find ourselves in a place of power and position It led to a little bit of arrogance on Peter's behalf. We see this arrogance begin to build. We see these assumptions and presumptions. And Peter gets on a quick track to failure. You'll find in Matthew chapter number 16, verses 21 through 23. Now when Jesus announces to his inner circle that they're going to Jerusalem where he's going to be betrayed, rejected, crucified, but raised from the dead. Peter feels that he should bring the Lord aside and says, now Lord, that's, uh, that's, that's, not, that's not the right plan. We need to talk about this. I'm thinking that you're going down a wrong trail. It is that point that Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You think you know what's best and you don't know nothing. What you need to do is be quiet and listen to what I'm saying and learn from what I'm saying rather than trying to talk me into a more acceptable plan. You see, Peter's starting to believe his press a little bit, he's gotten a little arrogant, he, he's gotten a little bit full of himself. In John chapter 13, verses 5 through 10, in that upper room that we referred to as we took communion, Jesus gets down to the disciples' feet, takes off His outer garment, wraps a towel around His waist, and begins to wipe and wash the feet of the disciples. The task of a slave that none of them saw fit to do for one another, but the Master now is doing for all of them. When Jesus gets to Peter, Peter pulls his feet back. Pious is he, holier than the rest of these guys, goes, no way, Lord, you're not you're not washing my feet. I'll not have you wash my thinking himself more righteous in his thinking. Jesus looks him in the eye and says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. He says, This is what I came for. I came to serve. I came to be the slave. I came to be what you can't be. And what none of you were willing to be. But in his arrogance, in his pride, he's arguing with the Lord. In Matthew 26, verses 30 through 35, after this debacle of of argument, When Jesus makes another declaration that in just a little while, every one of you are going to abandon me. Every one of you are going to run away from me. Peter makes a point to announce to all those listening, Lord, I don't know about the rest of these clowns, but I know what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And if it means I'll die with you. You know what Jesus' response was, Peter? Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll have already publicly denied me. And you know what happened? Of course you do. This pride-filled, arrogant, puffed-up, first-place PR, take charge, dude, by the light of the fire outside of the houses where Jesus was being judged to be executed, this big, loud-mouthed dude found failure one on top of the other. Yeah, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know who you think you've seen. No, 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 you don't. No, no, I don't know him at all. I'm just here warming myself. Look, I swear by awe, and you can write it down. God is my witness. I don't know that man, Jesus. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And this impulsive risk taker that was chosen by Jesus, this one who rose to the top, this one who got into first place right beside the master, has now fallen and been broken by his own denials thankfully John chapter 21 verses 1 through 23 shows us the picture of the restored pastor and leader oh yeah he had been the arrogant failure no doubt this man Peter had blown it and he had blown it royally but now out on the sea, fishing again and catching nothing, he hears a voice from the shore. Hey, boys, you catching anything? No, I ain't caught anything. What are talking about? Why don't you leave us alone trying to catch fish? Why don't you throw your nets on the other side of the boat? What, what, what good's that going to do? Eh, worth a try. On the other side of the boat, the nets went. And what did they find? The same miracle that happened when Jesus called this impulsive buffoon. Scores of fish pouring in and immediately this absolute failure. This one who swore they'd all abandon him, but not me, Jesus. You can count on me. And he couldn't. This one realized who was on the shore, stripped off his jacket, in the water he went. Didn't even care about the fish. Y'all can figure that out. In the water he went to the risen Lord, who just happened to have fish roasting and ready to eat. In those verses, we watch as Jesus brings this absolute failure, just like Jesus said he would do. You're going to fail, Peter. But I've already prayed, those of you who are here with us for the Luke series. Jesus says, but I've already prayed for you, Peter. And I'm praying that when you fail, that you'll not be in despair. And when you're restored, you'll lead my people. I've already prayed and there he is. Now, Peter, let me ask you a question. Do you love me? Lord, you you know I love you. I do. Peter, I want you to to shepherd my people. I want you to pastor my followers. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I, I love you. Good. I want you to feed my sheep. Teach my people. Peter, do you love me? it's obvious you know my heart you you, you know me through and through you you know that to the best of my ability as broken as I am I, I do I love you I don't have any confidence in me but I do I love you well then I want you to feed my sheep I want you to get up from here restored I want you to get up here in confidence of my love I want you to get up from here with assurance of your call And I want you to go represent me. And that's exactly what Peter did. He got up from there in the book of Acts from chapter 1 to chapter 12. Once Jesus had ascended into glory, once the Holy Spirit had been given in the upper room and they were infused with power and understanding, we see Peter standing up in the face of all who will hear right in the hotbed of Jerusalem and proclaiming the gospel of that one you crucified has been raised. And the only way of forgiveness is through repentance in His name. What are we to do, man? I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Because baptism saved them? No. But because baptism was the telltale way Of saying publicly, I'm with Jesus, the one y'all crucified, and the one who was raised. Forgiveness is by repentance. And I don't care who hears, and I don't care what you do. And he proved it. Because the times he was arrested, he boldly stood up and said, boys, I, I don't know what to tell you. You're telling me not to preach in Jesus' name. You think you got authority. All I know to tell you is, you try to decide whether or not I should do what you say to do or not. I'm going to do what God told me to do. I'm going to do what Jesus called me to do. I can't stop preaching in the name of Jesus. We're going to beat you, Peter. And nothing I can do about that. I'm still going to preach in the name of Jesus. And when they did beat him, He kept on preaching. And when they did arrest him and threaten him, he kept on proclaiming. At every turn, this impulsive risk taker, this first among others, this PR right-hand man to the bastard, this arrogant failure has now been restored to a powerful pastor leader. And that's what he's going to be For the next 35 years. For the next 35 years. He's going to be the apostle of hope. He's probably the source. Of the material found in the gospel of Mark. This broken man Peter. Has now been raised to the place. Of slave. But willing self proclaimed i'm just a slave of jesus and i'm an apostle because of what he has done for me my god and my savior clement the pastor of rome in ad 98 to his letter in his letter to the church in corinth mentions peter's multiplied sufferings his multiplied trials and his ultimate martyrdom. Clement very well may have been a young man who knew Peter and saw him personally, but he talks about the ongoing suffering that he felt and ultimately laying his life down as a martyr. Tertullian of Carthage in AD 200, about 100 years after Clement, stated that Peter was crucified In Rome, under the persecution of Nero. That would fit the dates. In the place where this crazed emperor was persecuting Christians in any vile manner he could, finally found one of the ones who was with Jesus himself. And legend tells us, in the place that now is Basilica Square, at the Vatican in Rome... That Peter was crucified. Early stories, certainly unverifiable, but but early enough in the tradition to very likely be true, says that Peter begged to not be crucified as his Lord had, but rather to be spun upside down so that his crucifixion would not be linked to his Lord's who he didn't feel worthy to emulate. This impulsive, unqualified, undignified dude that got a little power, got a little saucy, became a little arrogant, became a failure, was restored by his Lord, and was a mouthpiece of hope, And a beacon of the gospel. Because of his makeup. Because of what he brought to the table. Because of how strong and able he had become. No. Because of his ever increasing submission to his Lord. To where he could say. I'm just a slave of Jesus. But I want to encourage you, and I don't have much more time. There's dangers out there, and I believe God would have me to warn you about them. That's who's going to write, that's who God's going to use to be a blessing and encouragement to us. So, what are the useful lessons that we can learn? From Peter this morning. What are some things that we can see? Well, first and foremost, I think we can learn this lesson. Jesus chooses the most unlikely and unqualified ones to follow Him. See, if if you've always felt like, listen, I can't be worth much to Jesus at all, then you're at the right place to start. Because you're not. In fact, those that you look at and you say, wow, they're they're way more qualified than I am. Of course you're a follower of Jesus because look at all you bring to the table. Do you know how much all they bring to the table is worth? Filthy rags. They bring nothing. And and anyone who is going to be an obedient follower of Jesus must recognize first and foremost, I am nothing. Nothing but the recipient of your amazing grace. I am nothing but the receiver of a love that I cannot explain, but I will not ignore. You're a wretch, a worm, just like me. But guess what? We are highly favored by our Creator. He looks on us, in our worthlessness in sin. And he loves us fully. Without reserve, some songwriters may actually use the term reckless in the way Jesus loves us. You say, I'm not, I'm, I'm not anything. You're right. But to him... You're everything. We learn the lesson that Jesus chooses those that are unlikely. Because it's not what makes them unlikely, it's what He intends to do in the unlikely and the unqualified. Lesson two, we know that generally speaking, position and power often leads to arrogance and arrogance almost always leads to failure. You know that happens in life, right? You see it happen. The more power, the more position, the more prestige, the more arrogant you become. And then the next thing you know, the mighty tumble. And when they do, it makes a loud crash. That's just in general. But you know what happens in the body as well? We come to know Jesus. We get to follow Him a little bit. We get, we get a little bit of pep in our step then we start feeling pretty good about ourselves. We start feeling like, you know what? I've arrived. I'm not what I used to be. Well, I'm something a whole lot better than I used to be. We start believing the things that people are saying about us and trying to encourage us. Man, I'm really seeing growth in your life. You sure are, man. You sure are seeing growth in me. Let me tell you about some things I know. I've been doing a lot of reading. Let me share some things about you. This is really good stuff. You're going to learn a lot. The more place of prominence... The more arrogant we become and we know as followers of Jesus what failure feels like don't we because we've all been there in fact we might be there right now we might be in a place of failure going there, there ain't nothing that gonna happen I, I I'm done I'm toast I'm finished I I can never be used by the Lord again. Know this fact. The, The farther up the ladder you climb, the farther down and the more painful the fall. But when we fall, and we're gonna, and we're in the mud and we're in the dirt and we're in despair, lesson number three is failure is not fatal. To those who submit to the restoration Jesus offers his disciples. You see, what was Jesus looking for from Peter, who had blown it? Jesus was looking for him to admit it. I know you want to run for it, I know you want to hide. My creation's been hiding when they blow it since the beginning. I know you want to run. I know you don't want to pray because you, you don't feel like you can talk to me because you think I'm mad at you. And you, Look, what I want you to do is just be honest and admit your failure. It'd be real healthy for you to admit how you failed and why you failed. But ultimately, I just want you to recognize where you're at, and I want you to know that I know where you're at, but I don't want you to stay there. I, I want to pick you up. I want to dust you off, I want to clean you up, and I want to assure you that I'm not done with you. Some of you need to hear that this morning. That God's not done with you. If you're His child, and you've blown it, and you've blown it big time, don't listen to the voice of the enemy says, you're done, you're finished, you'll never be used again. That's a lie. Jesus says, you'll come to me. If if you're through confession, just return to me. I'll set your feet back under you. I'll use you again. Some of you need to hear that about someone you've given up on because they've blown it. They come to you and you say, I just want you to know that I've confessed my sin and Jesus has forgiven me and and, and I want to be useful to him again. You're going, you ain't never going to be useful to him. I know you're just going to be right back where you were. Be careful because guess where you're looking at them from? That ladder of arrogance. And it's a long way down and it hurts when you fall. Remember, failure is not fatal to those that will go... I blew it, Lord. We learn that from this disciple. We see that from his life. And then lastly, disciples who completely submit to Christ and just say, I don't have much to offer. I know that now. But whatever I got, I'll give it to you. You use it however you want to. Those are the ones that Jesus uses to accomplish His purposes for His glory. Because it's no longer about you. It's about Him. I should have asked you earlier in the message, but are you a follower of Jesus today? Yeah. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you can learn some lessons from the successes and failures of the one who's writing the letter that we're going to learn from over the next few weeks. Wherever you're at in that spectrum, understand God wants to use you. Jesus wants to empower you and use you in a very effective way. But you got to stay off that ladder. you got to get up off that ground and come back to Him. And when you submit holy, God, I'm just a slave of Jesus. Now, that's something He can use for His glory. And that's every one of us. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, well, the good news is is that He died in your place and for your sin. And if you'll place your trust in Him and Him alone, crucified and risen for you, you too can be one that's unqualified and unlikely, but chosen by the Savior to be a light for Him. Amen? Well, then let's stand. I don't know where you're at today, but I want to encourage you. You're not done. Don't let the enemy tell you that. Do business with Christ while we pray. There'll be folks that are up front, I think, that'll be praying with those that might need it. Just slip out and go to where, you, where they're going to be right up here on the right-hand side. and If you need help, if you want somebody to pray with you, they'll be there. But you can do business with Jesus right now. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be under the sound of your word. We thank you for your servants who, who give us an opportunity to see what it looks like when Jesus brings about transformation. We don't celebrate Peter today with, without any other uh, thought other than look what Jesus did through Peter. And we believe that that your Son can do the same kinds of things through us for His glory. Those are the lessons we want to learn. What it looks like when a follower of your Son submits wholly and completely to Him. I pray that you'll draw our hearts to that place where that's what we want. I pray you'll draw the heart of the one that doesn't yet know Christ. Help them to recognize their sin, to see it for what it is to be willing to just submit to the one who gave himself for them. God, I pray for those that are in the dirt, that they might get up, that they might receive the restoration that comes through confession and repentance. And then, Father, I pray that you'll use us in whatever way you see fit this week. We look forward to what's ahead. You've got plans and purposes for us, and we pray that we will embrace that, look for those opportunities, and then be obedient as we step into that for your glory. God, we look forward to what's in store. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said?